Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Berasli. The coronavirus restrictions are meant to save lives, but for authoritarian leaders, they can be an excuse to adopt repressive measures. For the past several months, governments around the world have been focused on stopping the spread of COVID-19. As the number of cases and deaths rises sharply, Italy faces growing isolation with thousands of flights cancelled. Germany joins a growing list of EU countries to at least partially shut out their neighbours. Today I am officially declaring a national emergency. Without a huge national effort to halt the growth of this virus, there will come a moment when no health service in the world could possibly cope. From Asia to Europe to the Americas, the majority have declared states of emergencies and imposed stay-at-home orders. In a few, officials have embraced vigorous surveillance mechanisms to track and monitor outbreaks. Israel has given its security agencies the power to track the mobile data of people suspected of having the virus. South Korea has taken similar steps by using mobile phone and satellite technology to track potential carriers. Extraordinary times, as they say, call for extraordinary measures. But while many of those being implemented worldwide have been seen as necessary to tackle the crisis, there is fear that government's temporary powers will become permanent. Hungary has been under a state of emergency since early March because of the coronavirus. That has been extended with no time limits. On March 30th, Hungary's parliament handed Orban more powers for an indefinite period of time. The measures allow that the country's Prime Minister Viktor Orban to rule by decree. It allows the government to bypass democratic institutions in its response to the coronavirus outbreak and exacts heavy punishments for journalists if their coverage of the pandemic is deemed inaccurate. This comes as no surprise to those familiar with the country. Despite Hungary's membership in the European Union, Orbán's government has been turning its back on Western-style liberal democracy since coming to power in 2010. Will his new powers be the final nail in the coffin of Hungarian democracy? Our next guest says it might be. Hello. Hi, Professor. It's Elmira Berasli. Michael Ignatieff is the president and rector of Central European University, which had been located in Hungary's capital, Budapest, until Orban forced it out in 2017. Ignatieff, where are we reaching you? Uh, I'm in Balaton Fjord near Lake Balaton, which is two hours from Budapest. He joins me on the phone from his home outside of Budapest. Great. So, Michael, we saw at the end of March the Hungarian parliament pass the coronavirus emergency law which many consider to be just the latest episode in a decades-long campaign by Prime Minister Viktor Orban and his far-right Fidesz party to dismantle Hungarian democracy. I'd love to take a step back, though. How did we get here? Boy, it's a complicated story about how we got here. I mean, you probably have to go back to the period when Hungary was under communist rule under Janos Kadar. After 1956, that is, this is a country that has had a long tradition of single-party authoritarian, single-leader rule. So it's it's baked into the political culture of this country. It then had a period between 89 and 2010 when it experimented and tried to make transition to democracy. That was a period in which rule of law, constitutional authority, free elections, uh, free press were all consolidated, a capitalist market economy was created. A lot of very positive things happened, but 
I think it was a period, this period of transition, which left a lot of people out and a lot of people disillusioned. And by 2010, when Viktor Orban took power, there were a lot of Hungarians who felt that the transition had been hijacked by a kind of Budapest liberal elite that had its nose in the trough, was corrupt, uh, wasn't protecting them. And when the 2008 financial crisis happened in particular, the feature of the crisis here was that international banks sold a lot of mortgages to Hungarians who'd never seen a mortgage in their lives. And these mortgages were denominated in foreign currencies like the euro or the Swiss franc. And suddenly, hundreds of thousands of Hungarians found themselves underwater for the first time. And in the financial chaos that ensued, I think a lot of the prestige and allure of a transition to you know market capitalism and democracy was washed away. And it was precisely at this point that Orban pounced and built an election victory in 2010. And then the minute he got into power, then began to consolidate power by reducing the power of the constitutional court, eliminating the independence of uh, the media. And it's proceeded ever since. And, uh, you know, I, I have to declare an interest here. I'm the rector and president of Central European University. In 2017, he decided to throw us out of Hungary because we're a private free institution that believes in open society values. And so, you know, we were part of the process by which he consolidated single party authority. So how did we get here, which was your original question? This is a kind of short course of how we got here, but it's, as we say, heavily determined by by the past. So this new legislation, obviously we're we're pretty shocked in the West, but what has been the reception in Hungary? Well, because the country's in lockdown and because everybody, not just in Hungary, accepts that in a global pandemic, governments need to take very strong measures, there's been not very much pushback. I mean, there can't be any pushback because there can't be any demonstrations. There can't be much pushback in the media because he owns 85% of it. But the measures that have awoken the most controversy have been the attempt to reduce the powers of municipalities. In October, in the first real serious challenge to Orban since he came to power in 2010, a number of opposition politicians won power in municipalities across Hungary, one of which was Budapest, the capital city. Budapest is to welcome in a new mayor after local elections. Kyrgyz Karachoyan's win is a blow to the right-wing Fidesz party, who are staunchly anti-immigration. Although opposition parties have made gain in other parts of the country... And in these emergency decrees that he passed in the wake of the coronavirus crisis, he's essentially neutered or taken away all power from municipalities, such that a big city like Budapest has really no capacity to do anything about the coronavirus crisis. It has no authority in public health. It has no capacity to uh, even protect the old old people's homes, the, the care homes that are in its jurisdiction. And so a very unpleasant game is going on in which the government takes power from municipalities and then blames municipalities when they fail to take care of their people. It's a power grab, 
but it also then enables Orban to blame any bad consequences on his political opponents. And, and that's a, you know, that's a pattern that you see in other places in the world, but it's, it's a terrible politicization of a crisis that, that ought to really bring people together. So were the municipalities the only roadblock from preventing Viktor Orban from going full dictator? And I want to put that in the context of Hungary's been a democracy in name only for a while, and Orban's Fidesz party has entrenched itself in power by amending the electoral law. You pointed out that they control most of the country's media and that Orban has packed the court with loyalists. Why go full dictator now? Well, it's a good question. In other words, he has enough power without seizing more power to do pretty well what he wants. I think he's using this as a pretext because his drive is towards single-party rule. His concern, I think, is free elections. His concern is that as of November, as of October last year, when opposition politicians began to gain power in municipalities, he began to worry that he might not win the next election. So part of the seizure of all these new powers is basically make it impossible for the opposition to win an election. If they haven't any access to the media, if they haven't any capacity as municipal politicians to do anything to protect their people, then it makes it that much easier for him not only to win the next election, but even to find when the next election occurs. I have no idea what's on his mind. I'm privy to nothing, but but this would make sense of why he's seizing all these special powers now. So we've been talking about Hungary, but I want to take a step back and I want to take a look at the wider world. Israel's shut down courts and increased citizen surveillance. We've seen in Bolivia that they have postponed elections. Here in the United States, Donald Trump claimed that he had the total authority to determine the end of states' lockdowns before backing off of that. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. Total. Your authority is total. It's total. It's total. Which governments have been most successful at reconciling public health and safety with democracy and the rule of law? Well, it's clear that some politicians, Orban would be one example, but there are others, have used the coronavirus crisis as a pretext to increase power. And those countries that are already heavily authoritarian, like China, have used their powers to crush the virus and at the same time crush their citizens. The ones that have been effective, I think if you look around, the COVID-19 crisis is not, repeat, not a story of democracy failing to rise to the occasion. I mean, you just had an example there a minute ago about Trump you know, all right-thinking, progressive liberal people think Trump's a very bad thing, blah, blah, blah. But what they're not noticing is the amount of pushback within a federal system that had him backtrack within 24 hours and basically admit what is the constitutional fact, which is that governors have the power to determine whether their states come out of lockdowns. My administration is issuing new federal guidelines that will allow governors to take a phased and deliberate approach to reopening their individual states. 
I read that as a story of the Constitution of the United States working as it should and imposing certain limitations on a, on a president who doesn't seem to either understand or care what the Constitution of the United States actually says. If you then switch to other countries, I mean, you know, there's a couple of big examples in Europe. Angela Merkel consulted very carefully with all the lander, the provincial governments in Germany. Austria has had a good record here. I think the COVID-19 crisis is showing that when democratic leaders tell their people the truth, i.e. tell them the bad news early, enforce lockdowns early, um, mobilize all the resources of their society early, democracies show that they can get on top of things like this. And that's incredibly important for the future because, you know, we're we're going to be in this particular epidemic crisis until a vaccine is found. And there's bound to be another epidemic coming down the track. I mean, it's five years, 10 years, 20 years. We don't know. But we're going to be in uh, an epidemic again. And um, this is a chance for us to show that democracy can actually rise to the challenge. I come out of this thinking that if you have semi-decent leadership in a democracy and the institutions work properly and they're properly mobilized by good leadership, you know, you, you can tell a very, very good story about whether democracies can compete with authoritarian regimes in handling crises like these. We'll be right back. If you're a regular listener to Opinion Has It, you may find yourself asking, how can you help support the work we do here on the podcast? Honestly, the best way is to become a subscriber at Project Syndicate. And now we're offering our listeners 50% off a new subscription. That means for less than $1 a week, you can help us continue to interview the experts and join a community that's committed to a crucial public good, a truly open world of ideas. Use the discount code PODCAST2020, that's podcast 2020, all one word, when you subscribe on project-syndicate.org. Well, you just said democracies have stood up to the challenge, but I want to look back at George W. Bush. After 9-11, President Bush expanded his executive powers with the Patriot Act, which remains in place today. And so even in a democracy, do leaders ever give up the emergency powers they claim during a time of crisis? That's a good good example, but I think it's important to remember that some of those powers were whittled back by Supreme Court judgments. Some of them were whittled back further by federal court judgments in the United States. I'm no expert in this area, but I don't think the Patriot Act ended up being unamended. And it seems to me that the rule of law institutions in the United States pushed back against some of the parts of the Patriot Act that were um, egregious uh, violations of civil liberties. The story about emergency uh, law in democracy is a very, very old one. Every democracy since the Greeks has understood that there are emergencies that require the laws and the protections and, and the rights that citizens enjoy that require these to be abridged when 
you know, foreign invasion, epidemic, catastrophe, disaster. Uh, democracies are built for this kind of thing. The, the key thing is that they, the abridgments of democracy are temporary, they're date-stamped, mandated by a legislature, they're reviewed by the courts, uh, and they are discarded as soon as an emergency passes. Now, you're saying, well, the Patriotic Act is an example where the emergency doesn't get dismantled. Well, it's going to be very important in, in this COVID-19 story that we don't infringe permanent accretion of executive power as a result of the crisis. And that's why the Hungarian example is, is worrying, because there's no guarantee that he will walk these emergency powers back once the crisis is over. You just mentioned that the Hungarian example is worrying, but Hungary is also a really small country. It's really not a major international or economic player. Why is the slide towards dictatorship worrisome? I think that's a good point, actually. I mean, I sit in Hungary and I worry about it, but one way to put this is who wants to be Viktor Orban? Who really wants to be Hungary? I mean, why do we think that this is a dangerous model for other countries? Austria is right next door, and Austria has a very right-wing party that cozies up to Viktor Orban, but those right-wingers in Austria know that, you know, getting too close to Orban is electoral suicide. So I don't, I don't actually think that the Orban model is attractive to anybody uh, in Europe. The worrying thing is that, you know, there's this thing called the European Union, and it watches this guy basically abbreviate every legal guarantee that Europe stands for and does nothing. So it's not that Orban model is replicable in other European states. The problem is that Europe as an international institution is doing nothing to stop him. It's also the case that the United States is doing nothing to stop him. Nobody's doing anything to stop him. Nobody cares. That's where it becomes potentially dangerous because if nobody stops Orban, then nobody's going to stop anybody else, uh, somewhere else. It's not that people will copy Orban. The message they will draw, however, is that nobody cares what you do inside your own country. So whether you're Duterte in the Philippines or you're Bolsonaro in Brazil or you're still less Putin or Xi Jinping, we're in a world where dictators, authoritarian leaders have basically an entirely free hand over their domestic populations. Well, you just mentioned Bolsonaro and Duterte, and they are among the authoritarians that tend to view facts instrumentally. You know, we've talked about Orban targeting journalists. Trump has definitely undermined his own government's scientists and experts in the United States. Could the pandemic end up weakening such leaders in the long run? Well, one hopes so, but in any political analysis, one has to try and make sure that your hopes don't get in the way of a clear-eyed analysis of what's actually happening. I do think that, cliche is true, facts are stubborn things. And what Trump has found very, very difficult is as the fatality rates in the United States continue to grow, the U.S. has now recorded more than a million COVID-19 cases. That's almost a third of the global total. Uh, it becomes much, much more difficult, even for a genius, uh, to deny the brute reality 
that a lot of people have died and a lot of people might not have died had in early February uh, the president of the United States on advice from his public health officials just basically clamped the place down. People die from the flu and this is very unusual and it is a little bit different but in some ways it's easier and in some ways it's a little bit tougher. Uh, but uh, we have it so well under control. I mean, view this the same as the flu. When somebody sneezes, I mean, I try and bail out as much as possible. He will have to wear that. That will be a historical legacy. But, you know, it would be also a mistake to assume that Trump is the only problem here, that the COVID-19 crisis has laid bare the state of American public health. It's laid bare the radically poor emergency preparation that many states have. So there are lessons here for everybody. To your original question, though, I think it's very difficult when coffins are being loaded into refrigerators for populist leaders like Bolsonaro and Trump to pretend that facts are otherwise than what they are. An epidemic really lays bare the limits of spin. I want to pick up on what you just mentioned about populists and populism. After the 2008 financial crisis, we saw a rise in the West of populist movements. And here I'm thinking about Brexit, the election of Donald Trump in 2016, the election of populists in Italy and Poland. But in the past few months, we've definitely seen a bit of a reversal. I'm thinking about the EU elections last year where populists didn't gain that much. But now many are worried about a resurgence in populism if the economic fallout of COVID-19 is particularly devastating. What are your thoughts on that? I think the honest answer, we don't have a clue. This crisis has simply upended all of our narratives and all of our assumptions. I mean, there are two ways this could go. On the one hand, the very seriousness of the crisis could render so many of these populist leaders ridiculous. I mean, I don't fancy Donald Trump's chances in the fall. I don't know why I don't fancy them, but I just think the pandemic is exposing the shallowness, the hollowness, the mendacity of a certain kind of populist leader, Bolsonaro, Trump, we could go on. But it is also equally possible that if the economic crisis proves enduring, if we can't get the economic machine turning effectively by the fall, if this lurches into a depression, not a recession, but a depression, we know from the 1930s just how incredibly destabilizing depressions can be for the stability of democratic systems. And it's in in that situation, as we know, that you don't get populists, you get fascists. Uh, that I think should concern anybody. I don't think we're out of this. I don't think we're we're certain where the future lies, but we should listen very carefully to what the history tells us and the history story about the relationship between depression and democracy is not a happy one at all. Michael, we end each episode by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? Uh, Partly because I was once in politics myself. I'm a pretty passionate Democrat small d democrat i really believe in democracies and when i see political leaders do what leaders have to do which is give the people the bad news tell it to them straight tell them here's some tough stuff we're going to have to do together 
and then they get it done. I, I come out with a with a tremendously even emotional sense of renewed confidence in democracy. I, I think the the Trump press conferences are as bad as it gets, but I think Angela Merkel's speech to the German people are as good as it gets. I think Jacinda Ardern has been fantastically good. Um, I think Chancellor Kurtz, uh, who's not, I'm not of his political family, but he's obviously led a pretty good effort in Austria. I, I come out thinking that when democratic leadership is good, it can rise to any challenge. So that definitely gives me uh, hope. Michael, thank you. Thank you. I hope that was I hope that was useful. That was Michael Ignatiev, the president and rector of Central European University. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrasli. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunna.